from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is Update One, the club's official podcast. It features newsworthy stories originating from the NPC facilities, as well as broader topics related to journalism, communications, press freedom, and transparency. Welcome to the National Press Club's Update One podcast. I'm Mike Hempen. As listeners know, we often like to highlight press freedom issues on the podcast, press freedom developments from around the world, and that's the focus of this podcast. I am joined by the Deputy Director of Advocacy for the Freedom of the Press Foundation, Caitlin Vogus, and we'll be talking about a press freedom case that has been in the news for a few months. First of all, Caitlin, welcome to Update One. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. We are going to talk about an FBI raid that occurred in May on the home of journalist Tim Burke. If you can talk about Tim Burke, the journalist, and why his home was raided. Yes, Tim Burke is a freelance journalist who's based in Florida. He's reported for established news outlets in the past, like the Daily Beast and Deadspin. But now as a freelancer, what he's known for is finding newsworthy materials on the Internet. And that's what he did that spurred this case that we're going to talk about. He um, found outtakes of an interview that Tucker Carlson had conducted with the rapper Kanye West. And you may remember that interview when it aired on Fox News. It was uh, got a lot of attention. But But what Burke found were the uh, unaired outtakes from the interview that showed that Kanye West had actually made anti-Semitic remarks during that interview. And Fox News and Carlson had edited those remarks out of the portion of the interview that was actually broadcast. So Burke found this online. He found it at a totally publicly accessible website, which he accessed using a URL that any of us could access if we had that URL. And he shared those outtakes with the news media who found them newsworthy and they published stories about West's anti-Semitic remarks. After that, in May, the FBI conducted a raid of Burke's home in Florida and Burke works out of his home. So essentially it was his home newsroom that they raided and they seized his computer equipment. They seized files that he was using for his journalism and other journalistic work product material. And what we know now is that the government was investigating Burke based on these outtakes of the Kanye West interview. And they have said that they're investigating whether he violated federal wiretapping law and a federal law called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or CFAA. Did they indicate where these allegations came from, why they think he committed these illegal acts? No, we don't know why they think he committed illegal acts or where the allegations are coming from. And in fact, we don't know very much about the investigation at all. And that's part of the problem. Um, Burke filed a motion to unseal the search warrant affidavit, which would have laid out the facts that gave the government probable cause to search his home newsroom. Uh, The Tampa Bay Times also filed a motion to unseal that affidavit, but the government opposed that and a court denied the motion and said that the affidavit can remain under seal because the investigation is ongoing. And because of that, we really don't know many of the facts surrounding the investigation or even the government's legal theory for what Burke is supposed to have done that violates federal law. And I think that's a problem for press freedom because of the chilling impact it could have on other journalists who are conducting online investigations and don't know when their conduct may cross the line in the eyes of the government. 
Tim Burke is accused of violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. If you can explain what that is. Sure. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is a federal law that prohibits people from accessing computers or computer systems without authorization. And that's the key term that's at stake in this case with Burke. What does it mean to access something without authorization? Now, again, Burke has said that what he did was access totally publicly available information. And so something is publicly available. It's hard to see how accessing it could be without authorization and violate the CFAA. And that's why we need to know more about what the government's theory is and why it's investigating Burke. And is it common for journalists to be accused of violating this? Unfortunately, it is. It has become common for authorities to use computer hacking laws, whether it's the CFAA or equivalents in state law, to target journalists. So, for example, this summer there was a raid on a newsroom in Marion County, Kansas. And there what the police said is that the newsroom had violated state computer hacking laws. Now, it turned out that all the reporters that at the Marion County record had done were use a government website to look up someone's driver's license record. And that's not computer hacking. And the county attorney ended up withdrawing the search warrant that authorized that raid and the police chief resigned. So that's one another example of authorities using computer hacking laws to go after journalists. And it's part of a concerning pattern that we're seeing potentially play out in the Burke case, too. The material seized from his home. Has that been returned to him yet? The government has returned some of the material to Burke, but not all of it. And that's part of what Burke is currently disputing with the government in court. He asked for his equipment to be returned. The government said that it needs more time to assess whether the equipment and the files relate to their case and their investigation. And the court has given the government more time to go through the files and the computer equipment and determine what it needs and what it doesn't need and what it can return. So that's a fight that's currently ongoing between Burke and the government. Has there been much movement? in this case recently at all. I know the raid occurred in May, but has there been any recent developments? So after the raid, there was the motion by the Tampa Bay Times and by Burke to unseal the affidavit that I mentioned. And Burke also asked for the return of his equipment. But since the court ruled on that, there hasn't been much movement in the case. The government estimated that it would take them, I think, 10 weeks or so to go through the materials that they seized. And they've offered to update the court periodically, including at the end of this month, November. But uh, since then, we haven't heard anything from the government about whether they're actually going to charge Burke or any more information about what they're investigating. I know your group, the Freedom of the Press Foundation, you spearheaded an effort to include other organizations in a letter to the DOJ, if you can talk about that. Yes. So Freedom of the Press Foundation, along with the ACLU and the Florida First Amendment Foundation, wrote a letter to the Department of Justice that was joined by more than 50 press freedom organizations, including the National Press Club and the National Press Club Journalism Institute. And the reason we sent that letter is because we think there are two aspects of this case that are really concerning from a press freedom perspective. The first is the potential use of a vague computer hacking law, the CFAA, to go after a journalist. And I say the potential use to go after a journalist because we don't really know all the facts. The DOJ hasn't explained why it believes Burke violated the CFAA. And according to what Burke says, he just accessed 
information that's publicly available online. And if that's the basis for the government's investigation, that's extremely problematic because all the time journalists are digging up information online. And if something is publicly available, journalists have a constitutional right to access it and to publish it. So we need to know more from the government what the basis is for their investigation and why they're saying that violated the CFAA or may have violated the CFAA. And it's particularly concerning because we see this as part of a pattern of government authorities using these vague computer hacking laws to go after journalists. The second aspect of the case that's concerning from a press freedom perspective is the newsroom search itself. There is a federal law that prohibits newsroom searches and seizures of journalist equipment in almost all circumstances, and that's a law called the Privacy Protection Act of 1980. And then the DOJ also has guidelines, the news media guidelines, that are an internal policy that's meant to restrict the DOJ's ability to seize documents from journalists. And what we're concerned about in this case is whether that law and whether that policy was actually followed. We don't really know. The government has said in court filings that it did follow the policy, but there's kind of a lack of clarity about what it means by that. One way it could have complied with the policy is if it decided that Burke was not a journalist at all. It could have said, Burke's not a journalist, so we don't think this law and this policy applies. And in its court filings, the government has cast some doubt on whether Burke is a journalist. They've said, well, he doesn't publish under his own byline, and he describes himself as a media consultant and things like that. But of course, many freelancers don't publish under their own byline. They send materials to news organizations organizations so they can publish them. And regardless of what Burke calls himself, if he was engaged in the practice of journalism, of gathering information and publishing it, then he should be protected as a journalist. So if the government wasn't treating Burke as a journalist for purposes of the Privacy Protection Act and its own guidelines, we think that's very problematic. If it was treating him as a journalist, then some exception to the law or the guidelines should have applied in order for the government to conduct the search. There are exceptions in them, such as when a, a journalist has committed a crime that's not related to his news gathering. And so maybe the government thinks that one of those exceptions applied, but we don't know. And so what we want to know is whether the government followed these policies, how did it follow these policies, and what kind of considerations did it make when it was applying these policies to Burke? Is that becoming more common where the government may go after a journalist who is a freelancer or does not work for a mainstream journalism organization and they're questioning his or her credibility? Yes, it is unfortunately common. Um, we do see freelancers are more likely to be targeted by the authorities. Um, this is especially the case uh, for journalists who are reporting at protests, for example. We often see freelancers are targeted by police and may have their equipment seized or may even be arrested when they're reporting at protests. And if they don't have a big news organization to back them up, it can be more difficult for them to get their equipment back or to get charges dropped. Um, in another example from recent years, there was a freelance journalist in San Francisco, Brian Carmody, who had his home newsroom and office searched by San Francisco police who were investigating a leak of information related to the a death of a public defender out in San Francisco. And there, it, it turned out, the police didn't even inform the court that he was a journalist when they sought the search warrant. And when that came out later and the court found out that, in fact, he was a search warrant, uh, it was, it, the search warrants were invalidated and Carmody actually settled a civil suit against the city of San Francisco and received, I think, over $300,000 because of the illegal search on his home newsroom and office. 
You've sent the letter to the DOJ and right now you're awaiting a response. Is that right? That's right. We sent the letter at the beginning of October um, asking the DOJ to clarify both the basis for the CFAA charge and also uh, whether it followed its own guidelines when it searched uh, Burke's home. But we haven't gotten any response yet. And we hope that the DOJ will respond because we think this is a really important issue for journalists working around the country. They need to know, especially if they're freelancers, that the DOJ is going to apply the Privacy Protection Act and its own policies when it comes to investigations of journalists. And they need to know whether what they are doing in their online investigations could be considered to violate federal law in the eyes of the government. And with the journalism industry in recent years having cutbacks, positions being lost, I would think now you have more freelance journalists who are doing their own research and could potentially be targets. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And it's very concerning. And one of the things that we do at Freedom of the Press Foundation to try to combat that is we put out guidance and advice for journalists when it comes to issues like digital security and maintaining the security of their online activities and their files and their communications with sources. And we also worked with the Florida First Amendment Foundation after a newsroom raid that happened this summer in Kansas to put out a guide to the Privacy Protection Act to help journalists understand if the police come knocking on your door, what are the protections that you have under the law? And that's something we wanted freelancers especially to know because we know that they might not have legal counsel or a general counsel's office to back them up and to help them understand the law. And so right now, unfortunately, that's the situation we're in. We're seeing more raids like this. What are the potential impacts to journalism and the public at large? The potential impacts are severe because every time a raid like this happens, it has a chilling impact on journalists, but also I think even more importantly on their sources. So probably many of your listeners who are journalists know that sources are the lifeblood of journalism. And it's very important for journalists to be able to talk to sources and offer them confidentiality if sources need it. Sources may be afraid of legal exposure or they may be worried about losing their jobs or they may be worried about the impact on their families if they speak to reporters. And so reporters need to be able to tell sources that they can talk with the guarantee of confidentiality. But every time there's a newsroom raid, it raises the risk that authorities might actually expose uh, confidential sources or expose unpublished news gathering material. And that really discourages sources from talking to journalists in the first place. And that in turn means that the public has less access to newsworthy information and can't find out what's happening in government or in private companies or in their communities. Is this a case, Caitlin, where a journalist is being punished or investigated for doing his job too well? (laughs) Yes. I mean, Burke's reporting here really was a national story. I mean, everyone was talking about these anti-Semitic remarks that Kanye West was making and the decision of Fox News to edit the video to take them out. And so I think that really drew attention of authorities because it was such a high profile story. Um, And Burke is known as somebody, as I said in the beginning, who finds newsworthy information on the internet. And I think that maybe authorities don't understand exactly what that entails. Maybe this is a misunderstanding about what Burke's investigative techniques are, and they think that he's doing something more. But really, if what he's doing is just uncovering publicly available information, that's not a crime. That's news gathering. Even if the person who owns the information doesn't want the public to know about it, if they've exposed it to the public and they haven't taken any steps to keep it protected, then 
gathering it and publishing it isn't a crime. Your organization obviously has done everything it can. The other organizations signing on to the letter to the DOJ have done what they can. Now it's just a matter of this case playing out. And I guess that could take a while. Yes, absolutely. So we'll have to wait and see whether the Department of Justice does decide to bring criminal charges against uh, Tim Burke. If it does, that will be a whole other press freedom firestorm. Um, At the point that they actually bring an indictment against Burke, we should get more information about what their theory of the case is and what the facts are. But I think it will be um, extremely concerning still to see somebody who is a journalist, who was gathering newsworthy information, who really contributed to an extremely high profile story, potentially be prosecuted. And my hope is that the DOJ, after gathering its, its information through its investigation, will decide this isn't the right case to pursue. We don't need to use the computer hacking law to go after a journalist in this way and will drop its investigation and not pursue a case against Burke. We'll have to see how it plays out. Caitlin, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much, Mike. Caitlin Vogus has been our guest on Update One. She's the Deputy Director of Advocacy for the Freedom of the Press Foundation. I'm Mike Hempen. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Update One, the official podcast of the National Press Club, the world's leading professional organization for journalists and a vigorous advocate of press freedom worldwide. If you have any questions or comments about Update One, send an email to updateonepodcast at gmail.com.